What's up, everyone? This is episode 106 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast. My Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Well, I want to start off today's show by thanking everyone that's reached out to me recently. A lot of people seem to enjoy the Alan Siegel conversation from episode 105. If you haven't checked that out, make sure you do that. It was an honor to have him on the show. And even afterwards, I jumped on eBay to grab one of his books. I, you know, personally, I enjoyed the conversation that much. So hopefully that book will be here soon and I can dive into that. Really excited about it. And then I had several people that reached out to me in response to some stuff I said in episodes 103 and 104. Some of you went out and bought binders on eBay, so thank you for tagging me in those posts. I enjoyed watching them. I I hope you enjoyed that experience as well, and I've enjoyed seeing all of them this past week. Speaking of this past week, I think I made a mistake at a card show this past weekend, and I want to tell the story because I think it's something that other people might benefit from hearing. Because show etiquette can be tough at times, and when you're buying and selling with people, there's always some level of feeling things out. And there are errors, right, when you're trying to feel people out. So at this particular show, I didn't go to sell. Sometimes I do, you know, there are some shows that I might have a small table at. This one I only went to as a buyer. However, I took a small box of cards in case I saw something big that I thought I couldn't leave without. So as I was going around... I saw a card that's really, it's caught my eye at a previous show. And it was a Chris Middleton All-Star One-of-One booklet. It had a nice All-Star game emblem from the warm-up jackets that they wore uh, at the Charlotte game in 2019. So I'll preface this by saying, I don't really like Chris Middleton. And I don't have anything against him, but he's not a player that I'm really excited to watch. So that's why I passed on it the first time I saw it. But at the same time, seeing something like this... Uh, Running into something like this and knowing that it's so unique and so different, it still appeals to me on some level. So I'm just drawn to it. So, um, you know, I talked to the guy that owned it. I knew I wasn't going to pay cash for it. So I said, you know what, maybe he'll trade for it. And I asked him and he said, you know, let me see what you got. So I took out my box of trade stuff, or at least that I called trade stuff. I took it to the dealer. He graciously took the time to go through it. There was a lot of that Iverson stuff in there I've told you about. There were some nice LeBrons. He started looking values up, and I kind of stopped and said, you know, as as we were pulling out cards, well, I don't know if I want to trade that one or not, and I don't know if I want to trade that one. And as he was looking through my stuff, I more or less realized that I didn't want this Chris Middleton card as much as I thought. But I knew he had already invested the time and looked up some of my stuff, and instead of stopping this thing altogether, I let it drag on a little longer. So he, he asked me, well, you know, what cards are you willing to trade? It was a, a good, logical question. Um, he didn't do anything wrong in this whole scenario. And, and I want to clarify and, and be very specific here and emphasize the fact that he was more than willing to make something work for both sides. Um, I guess I was hoping he would be drawn to some of the non-LeBron or the non-AI stuff You know, I can move that stuff very easily. So to move that stuff for something of Chris Middleton, even though it would be a fair trade, it's hard for me to do. 
And that's just kind of my philosophy of trading. That's nothing against him. Um, but, you know, my non-AI and non-LeBron stuff, there was a significant difference in value. So, um, you know, I'm thinking about that. And then also I noticed earlier that the Middleton had a decent sized scratch on the front. And for some reason at this point in the conversation, I, you know, I didn't really think it through. I mentioned that to him. And I realized now, I guess in my head, I was trying to get out of the deal. But looking back, it, it was the wrong way to go about it. Um, because to him, I was trying to devalue his card. That's what it looked like. And I can understand why he would think that. So anyway, he sensed that this thing was going nowhere and he called it off at that point. Once again, he did nothing wrong in this situation. But when I left the table, I kind of had a bad feeling like, you know what? I really went about that the wrong way. And I hope I didn't jeopardize any future dealings because of that. You don't want to you know, develop a reputation as someone that's difficult to deal with or difficult to trade with or somebody that's not going to trade their trade stuff that they've designated as trade stuff, right? Um, so all of that is to say if you're going to engage with someone about a potential deal for a card and they're nice enough to take the time to look at your stuff, number one, make sure it's a card that you really want. Uh, number two, don't devalue their stuff in the process. And, you know, even if that's not what you directly meant to do, because I, I've been in cards for a long time. I've been making deals with people in the area for a couple years now. And quite frankly, I still have a lot to learn. I'm not going to beat myself up over it, right? I didn't go home and lose sleep about this, but um, it would be foolish of me to forget about this and then find myself in the same situation down the road and make the same mistakes. So that's all I'm saying. I think some people would benefit from hearing about that as well. Um, you know, take that for what it's worth. Okay, enough about me and my dealings. It's time to dig into the rest of today's episode. I feel like I have a good one for you today. Uh, at least it was really interesting to put together. I'm sticking with the usual format this week. I've got a few hobby headlines for you. I want to talk about some mail. And then today's segment talks about the history of Logo Man patch cards, at least the uh, pre-Panini history. So this is really just part one. Last week you heard about the logo itself. Now I get to talk more about the cards. So you'll want to make sure to stay tuned for that. All right, hobby headlines. Well, the latest batch of golden listings ended last weekend. And as per the recent trends, it was headlined by record sales. Some of you might have seen the BGS Black Label 9697 Kobe Topps Chrome Refractor. Well, that sold for nearly $1.8 million, making it the highest selling Kobe card of all time. And then there was also a, a LeBron Exquisite RPA with a pretty nice looking patch that sold for over $1.5 million, despite only grading a BGS 8.5. And then a second year LeBron Logo Man auto sold for nearly $1.3 million. A lot of money being thrown around here. And I don't know the buyers of these cards. And, you know, everyone's free to spend their money as they please. But once again, I wouldn't be surprised to see them end up on one of these new fractional ownership apps. And you guys probably know I'm not too wild on that idea. And actually, one of these apps um, emailed me this week. They reached out to me asking to come on the show. They're called the Otis app. The CEO had his assistant reach out. And she closed her email with, let me know if you're interested in speaking with Michael, who is 
the CEO of this Otis app. Well, that's an easy pass for me. I'd just as soon sit and chat with Otis from Milo and Otis. I care that little. In other news, SGC put out a pretty lengthy update post this week. I'm going to summarize it as accurately as I can, but I encourage you to read it for yourself on their website. Basically, they apologized for not being able to handle all of the new business they were asking for last spring. They talked about hiring new employees and increasing their workspace. The letter talked about the backlog that accumulated. One of the lines said, quote, A turnaround time of four to five months is far from changing the game like we had originally set out to do. End quote. Yes, that's very correct. From there, they announced that their backlog is now gone. They promised to be more transparent. And they announced an SGC podcast. However, all of those changes come at a cost. And this is where they then announced that they're raising prices from $15 a card to $25 a card. And they also said, quote, We refuse to let history repeat itself, and we will not take in more cards than we can handle. This means that if our capacity is exceeded in the first few days after this announcement is released, we will be forced to raise our prices once again to bring the inflow back to a manageable level. In other words, we're raising our prices, and you know what? If you send too many things in, we're going to raise them again. That's really going to you know, bring the business in. But, um, you know, I kind of rolled my eyes when I first read all this. Nothing they're saying here is horrible. It's understandable. You know, I joke, but it's understandable for them to have to raise prices in order to control that backlog. It keeps people from sending junk in. You know, I, I saw an SGC slabbed card the other day. It was a Nolan Ryan 1990 Donruss uh, SGC4. You know, like who's sending that in? So uh, maybe this will prevent some of that. And I think that could be a good thing. Um, what bothers me though about their whole new approach and some of their recent stuff is if you look at their social media, it's still snarky and they're still taking shots at BGS and PSA. And the most recent attempt involved a flow chart of all things. And at the top of the chart, it had the question, quote, do you want your cards back in a reasonable amount of time? And one side with just a straight arrow that led to SGC, the other side had all sorts of scenarios that led to, quote-unquote, the other guys. <sighs> I feel like we've been here before with these guys. Maybe things will turn out different this time. I don't know. I'll let you decide on your own if you want to take that risk. Okay, on to the mail. Now, I didn't do a mail day segment on last week's episode, and I got quite a few things in that time frame I won't go through all of it here. I posted a lot of it to either my Twitter or my YouTube. Um, One of the packages, I I bought a $70 lot. I think it said there were 500 cards in it because I saw a Tim Duncan Topps rookie inside, which would essentially pay it off. Well, it ended up having several hundred top loaders, clean top loaders, and a gold refractor of another star inside, which I won't spoil that for you here, but I unboxed that one on my YouTube. Feel free to check that out if you'd like. Several people already did, and I worked out not one, but two trades from some of the cards in the lot, which is not what I intended at all by posting that. I just like showing that because people like to see it, so that was pretty cool. But the first of those two trades already came in, and it was from uh, NJ Nets Collector 2. And his real name is Steven. 
Um, it was a 2005-2006 Topps total back printing plate for Jermaine O'Neal. He threw in a, a few extras as well, so that was nice. Thank you very much, Stephen. And he reached out to me several months ago, and I don't even remember how long, but um, he had a picture of this plate. He said, hey, I found it you know, in my box of numbered stuff. Didn't realize I had it. Um, asked if I was interested, which I was, but I didn't have any net stuff at the time. And it just so happened that in this latest lot, there was a 2003-2004 Fleer Tradition Crystal card of Jason Kidd and a numbered Vince Carter parallel from an upper deck set. I didn't think much about that at the time. And he saw those videos and reached out to me asking if I would trade them for the Jermaine O'Neal plate. So that was a quick and easy deal. We're both team collectors. Both sides got something that fit their collection. So that was nice. And I've talked about it on here before, but I've been chasing those plates on and off since the, the set came out in 2005. And this should serve as a reminder to some of you guys that acquiring PC cards that mean something and that will stand the test of time in your PC, it might take a lot of time. And in the process, that time investment will make it more worth it in the long run. The J.O. plate is a part of a product I've been chasing for 15 plus years. And just to recap, the process of tracking it down, actually I say recap, but there's some things in here you don't know. So the process of tracking this card down included recently, um, last year I made a trade with another collector named Ty for a small batch of printing plates. He knew I was looking for pacers. He collects printing plates, so we swapped plates. Um, That collector then went on to trade with Steven. He saw the Jermaine O'Neal. And even though he could have traded for it himself, he said, you know what, you might check with Kyle because that would fit in his PC better. So it's very generous of Ty. So then Steven reaches out to me because we really didn't know one another then. We had a great conversation, but I didn't have anything for him. So we put the deal on the back burner. This was months ago. Meanwhile, junk card skyrocket. So I'm now buying lots because of that. I'm able to build up my arsenal. I'm able to recoup most of my money. In these lots are Nets cards that don't fit my collection. Um, I post a video of that online, not to make trades, but just so you know people seem to enjoy watching those things being open and, and kind of uncovering stuff as I uncover it. So Steven happens to watch that video and he sees those Nets cards. So think about it. I didn't upload that specific video to somehow circle back to this Jermaine O'Neal plate. The thought didn't even cross my mind, but he then reaches out to me and and we make a deal. So if you're out there looking for specific cards right now, just know that everything you do in this hobby matters. And it could be getting you one step closer, whether you realize it or not. And it's funny, I mentioned that I made two trades from that lot. The second one is almost an identical situation. Um, except it spans multiple years. So if I have that by next week, I'll try and cover that in next week's mail day. Um, Never a dull moment in this hobby. The final package that I want to talk about from the last week or two was a nice box from ComC that I had been building for the better part of probably six months is my guess. I made a video for that one as well. It's on my YouTube. But I want to talk about one of the cards specifically. It is a 2012-2013 Panini Absolute Every Player Every Game Jumbo One of One Tag of Roy Hibbert. 
And as it turns out, I have a little bit of history with this particular card. A couple years ago, a blowout poster, well, really, he had been building the set for years. And a couple years ago, this blowout poster decided he was going to break up the set. And that included tags, these jumbo tags for David West and Roy Hibbert. And I, you know, I hope I'm remembering everything correct here. Like I said, it has been a few years. So I was able to negotiate a deal for the David West. I was very happy about that. I really like that card. And it was pretty quick. There wasn't a lot of back and forth. He had the Hibbert as well. I told him I wanted it. You know, I was hoping we could work out a deal for that. But he said, well, I've got a Roy Hibbert collector that I know, and I plan to deal it to him. Which, okay, you know, I was bummed out about it at the time, but I appreciate player collectors. I knew it was still a good home for the card. Um, so like I said, that was a few years ago. Fast forward to a few months ago. This card showed up on Com C, and the price wasn't bad at all. So I, you know, whatever, you know, I guess the Hibbert collector was done. I, I you know, who knows? I don't know life circumstances. I'm not going to criticize them for getting rid of the card, whatever led to that. But the price... For whoever owned it now, they, they were asking $86 for it, which really isn't bad. And, of course, I was being cheap. I made a... Stupid. I made a $75 offer. I was hoping the seller was on at the moment, would accept it real quick, and I could save $11 in the process for a PC card that I really wanted, mind you. Um, they weren't on, and someone else snatched it up. And I was mad at myself more than anything. My guess was that someone bought it to flip it. I don't blame them. So I was going to keep watching for it. And I thought, you know what? I'm probably going to end up paying double for this. I learned my lesson. And eventually it was reposted. It was not double though. It was $500, which is absurd. So there was a period of several weeks where, you know, I knew that that price couldn't last. No one's going to buy that card. If I'm not buying that card for $500, which there's no way I was, nobody else is buying that card for $500. So I watched this thing for several weeks. It wasn't long before it dropped to $400, then to $350, then to $300, uh, then to $280. So I was you know, getting a little more excited. Once it got in the $240 range, it stopped dropping. And it looked like, you know, okay, this person probably wants to triple their investment. Well, 240 was still too high, in my opinion, for this card. But I really wanted it. And I, I tried to use my trading mindset that I've talked about before. You know, if, if you have a stack of junk and you can get X amount of dollars for that, and that's the same price as a card you really want, even if that card is overvalued would you trade that one stack for that one card you know so i said okay um if i can flip some cards and cover most of the cost i can justify it so then i had two nice sales one of them was the semi-ogile gold prism that i talked about a few episodes ago okay so i was getting close and i said you know what if this drops to 225 i'm snagging it and i was checking it every day and I was checking it multiple times a day, which is just, I, I don't want to say it's an unhealthy habit, but it's stressful, right? It's stupid stress that shouldn't happen. It's ridiculous. It's obsessive. So um, it never dropped. And then I'm talking to Steve, aka S. Halley, 
and we got to talking about the set. Well, he ends up buying the Paul Pierce from the original owner, the same guy that had the Hibbert in the West, and I was pumped up for him, right? I was excited because this is an awesome set. Well, you know, we're, you know how when you get to talking with people, and I'm thinking, you know what? I've got to grab that Hibbert. Panini doesn't make a lot of stuff like this anymore for veterans. Um, I'd rather have something nice like this as opposed to a bunch of smaller, newer patch cards. So anyway, this was a card I pursued several years ago. It showed up later. I whiffed on it again. I was able to flip my way toward covering most of the cost. And I've got it in hand now. I'm very happy to own it. It's not a card that's easy to photograph in the BGS lab, but I'll try and get a good picture up of that for you guys. You got to check it out. It's a great looking card. All right. Before I move into today's main segment on Logo Man cards, I want to take a moment to remind you how you can support this show. As you guys know, there are costs that go into producing a podcast. One of my goals is to always keep the show itself free. As a result, I've signed up for affiliate programs with eBay and Fanatics. If you'd like to help support the show in this way, go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com and click on either the Fanatics logo at the top or the eBay logo at the top, shop as planned, and the Wax Museum Podcast gets a small commission in the process. It's a win-win. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Hi, this is Alan Siegel, the designer of the NBA logo, and now you're listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Okay, today I get to talk about something I've been wanting to talk about for a long time. I hadn't got to this topic yet because I didn't feel like the timing was right, and I still needed to fill in a few gaps on my research. Well, you know, after you talk to the designer of the NBA logo, and then there's a record sale for a Logo Man card in the same week, that's motivation enough to finish your research. So I did, and I'm excited to bring this to you today. There are several directions I could go with this Logo Man history, and I'll talk a little bit about pricing when I see fit, but it's not a primary focus. A lot of that data is out there already. It's easily accessible um, should you want to retrieve it. I'm not anti-data, but it's it's just not what I'm going to focus on here. So instead, I want to split this series into several segments. I'm going to have the history of the Logo Man patch in the NBA. So this is before, you know, it was even put on cards. A summary of Logo Man patch cards in the pre-Panini era. And a summary of Logo Man patch cards since then. And I won't get to the last segment until next week. It ended up being just too much stuff. I'm splitting it into two episodes. All right. So let's start with the history of the logo and the logo man patch. So as for the logo itself, you heard all about that last week in my conversation with Alan Siegel. I'm not going to repeat all of it in detail, but basically in 1969, the league approached him about designing a logo. They wanted something similar to the MLB logo and he had worked on that and because they wanted unity with all of the major American pro sports leagues. So he found a picture of Jerry West that he liked He showed them his design, they approved it, and the rest is history. While this logo was initially used in a number of promotional materials, it didn't immediately show up on NBA uniforms like we see today. And just a note, if you're searching the history of the Logo Man patch online, you're not going to get many results. ESPN attempted a summary in 2014, and it's still there, 
but there's some major misinformation in that article. And this is from a column called UniWatch that specializes in, go figure, sports uniforms. They said that the first Logoman patch was included as part of the 35th anniversary patch that was used during the 1980-81 season. That is not correct. And I spent, and I know that because I spent hours this week researching that fact alone to make sure I could get the information correct. And that's really been one of my goals as a whole with this show. Take the information and the hobby history that's scattered all over the internet, scattered in Beckett magazines, in people's minds, people's experiences, and present that information in a more consumable fashion. And I, you know, I could have done another episode on the Logo Man hunt alone. It involved looking at photographs, at game-worn materials, basketball cards, game footage. Maybe I can bring that back for a segment someday if the interest is there, of course. Anyway, the findings revealed that the league first used the Logo Man patch in the 1970-71 season on the right leg of player shorts. And it was also featured on that year's All-Star Game shorts. Now, The only other time I saw the logo on a pair of shorts in the 70s was the 74 All-Star Game, um, but it didn't show up on a regulation uniform again until the 35th anniversary patch appeared on shorts for the duration of the 80-81 season. So, you know, it was very odd. They used this patch on shorts for one year in the 70s. And, you know, that answers some questions or at least helps to clear up some questions I had about the photos used for the 1972-73 top set because multiple players from uh, multiple teams had Logo Man patches on their shorts in that set, including Phil Jackson, Willis Reed, Pete Maravich, Butch Beard, and the list goes on. So it would make sense that the pictures for that set were taken at some point in the 1970-71 season, um, or at the latest, the start of the next season, and they were still using the previous season's shorts. I know I've griped about Panini using old photos for guys that have been traded to the Pacers in the past, but imagine if they used photos that were a year and a half to two years old. That would be pretty wild in 2021. A little more excusable in the 70s because, you know, stuff moved a lot slower in the 70s. They were physically mailing all this stuff and instructions to people. So, understandable. Okay. So the Logo Man still wasn't a normal thing in the years that followed the 35th anniversary patch. Um, starting in the early 80s, a jumbo Logo Man patch became a, a common part of each player's warm-up, but the Logo Man itself didn't make its way onto NBA jerseys until the 86-87 season when it was placed on the left shoulder and on either side of the shorts depending on where team logos were placed. And at that point, the league went almost three decades without any major changes to the Logo Man or its placement. I should clarify, though, the Heat um, were different, right? They had their Logo Man on the opposite side for roughly two decades. Um, I guess it was a stylistic thing from what I've read with the the flame and on the T and kind of how that worked. Anyway, um, no major changes, though for almost three decades. There were different variations for certain events or certain nights. For instance, the league used a gold logo man for the 96-97 season, which was the 50th anniversary. Um, They also had a special 50th anniversary logo logo man patch that went on all the warm-ups. There have been different logo man patches for some of the Christmas Day games. They did a green logo man for Green Week. 
They did uh, Special Logo Man for the Noche Latina events. The NBA Finals have had different logos, but all of those were temporary changes. The next big change, however, didn't take place until July of 2014. And that's when the league quietly moved the logo from the front shoulder to the back of the jersey, centered above each player's nameplate. And just a side note, for all of you patch card collectors, um, that spot above the nameplate prior to that, 18 teams had been using a team logo or secondary logo. Like think about the Celtics, they had the shamrock back there. They were using it in the same spot. So the logo man being moved back there then displaced those patches. Um, The reason for the move wasn't really confirmed at the time, but a lot of people correctly predicted that they were making space for ads in the future. And it didn't happen immediately, but if you've watched any games in the last couple of years, you've seen that it did eventually happen. The only other real major change since then happened when the league switched to to Nike in 2017. The patch stayed on the back, but the old uh, stitched or embroidered patch was replaced by a plastic, I think it's like a vinyl logo man. Okay, so when did these game patches eventually make their way into cards? That was just the history of the patches on jerseys in general. When did they get to the cards? Well, it took a while. If you'll recall, memorabilia cards weren't really a a thing until the late 90s. And even then, we didn't see a lot of prime patch sets early on. And there have been pieces of Logoman patches that have shown up in some cards from that era. Believe it or not, some of them are legitimate. Despite what you'll read on Facebook, please don't believe everything card-related that, or really life-related that you read on Facebook. Um, so some of them are legitimate, and I've had people try to tell me no company would make a Logo Man patch that's numbered to $3.99 or some absurdly high number. Well, if you're looking at cards today in the context of today, sure. But the fact of the matter is, I know people that have pulled some of these cards, and the early 2000s were just different times. And it gets really messy trying to determine which pieces are good and which ones aren't. So I would argue, though, that most of them are not. Um, But you just have to be careful. With that being said, when I talk about Logoman cards today, I'm going to focus mainly on pack-pulled, dedicated Logoman cards. That means cards that were designed to be circulated as a Logoman patch and not random pieces that just ended up in memorabilia cards. So, for example, there was an employee-issued Upper Deck card that had a Michael Jordan Logoman patch in it. I remember seeing a picture of this card in a Beckett but that was not designed as a pack-pulled Logoman card. So to me, that doesn't count. You know, people are going to try and say, that's the first Logoman. I'm talking about ones that you could pull from a pack that were designed to be Logoman cards. We didn't have any official pack-pulled designated Logoman cards until the 2002-2003 season. And there were two products very early in the season that had them. If you go by the release dates on Beckett's old website, and it took me forever to find the archived version of this list, the first official Logoman cards were packed out in 2002-2003 Stadium Club, which released on October 23rd. And that product had several Logoman sets, including frequent flyers, rookie reprints, and one of my personal favorites, All-Star Coverage. And um, I don't think you're even going to find the official checklist for these Logoman sets online. I don't think you're going to find them in a Beckett. 
Maybe the Beckett online price guide will have them, but I haven't seen them on any of the other um, checklist sites. However, the All-Star coverage card specifically, they are incredible. I have the Jermaine O'Neal, and one of my friends has the Jason Richardson. Shout out to James, Captain Jack Collector. These cards don't really get any attention, though, because there aren't many players in the set and no huge stars that grab all the headlines like Kobe or MJ. Um, but if it mirrors the base relic set, there are only 15 players, and they're all one of ones even though they're not stamped. There are only 15 cards. And most importantly, they feature Logo Man patches from the 2002 All-Star Weekend. So they look great. They have significance in that they're from the first Logo Man sets. Um, they had some significance that they're from the All-Star Weekend. Um, just a really cool set. But it was the Logo Man set that came out less than a month after on October 19th that garnered more attention. That was the 2002-2003 Upper Deck Series 1 Logo Mania autographs. This was a nine-card set that featured three Logo Man autos for Michael Jordan, three for Kobe Bryant, and three for Jay Williams. Now, that last one, that last name there, you know, that game, one of these things is not like the other, right? Jay Williams might sound goofy to some of you now, but Upper Deck was high on him, and guess what? He was a really big deal at the time. Um, if you were at the National in 2019, I believe Heritage had one of the Jordans on display in their booth. I don't know if it was the same one or not, but I know for a fact that at least one of the three Jordans that was pulled was pulled out of a pack from Target. A Target pack, right? Think how crazy that would be. And this was long before people were camping out in the aisles. Rounding out the 2002-2003 season, Topps released a product called Topps Jersey Edition where every base card was a relic. So that was a first in itself. And then every base card had a Logo Man parallel. So that was another first. Something really, really unique. So once again, I really liked this product. Um, the cards have a refractor-like technology to them. They look really good. A lot of people think that these are amateur-looking because the patch just kind of sits on top of the card. It's elevated above the surface. It juts out, right? It looks, you know, there's part of it that looks like a homemade card, even though it's not. They didn't really build a nice patch window for it, and it never fails. Every time I post one of these on social media, especially somewhere like, uh, Facebook, where all the idiots congregate, uh, people will tell me my card is fake. And I've even had people DM me, with good intentions, mind you, to let me know, hey, hey, bro, your card is fake. Well, the key is the positioning of the stamp on the back. But, you know, if you don't have the slightest clue what you're talking about, don't call someone's card into question. Okay? Okay, I realize I just spent a lot of time on 2002. I'm not going to do that for every season, but that one is really important because it's the first. And I think it also sets the tone for some of the major relic sets that the two companies would release in the years that followed. Tops had a lot of cool patches and relics for a wide variety of players. Upper Deck didn't always focus as much on the sheer number of players, although there were you know, sets later that I'll talk about. Um, but they focused a lot of times more on the quality and the caliber of player. And I appreciated both approaches because it, it appeals to two different markets. So there were there was a place for both of them. 
Now, the Logo Man uh, momentum, I guess you could call it, continued into the 2003-2004 season, and this time Fleer jumped into the fray. And, you know, Tops and Upper Deck were still cranking these things out. I know the number of sets at least doubled, if not more. And speaking of doubling, this was the first year that we got dual Logo Man cards, including the famous exquisite LeBron Jordan duel, which, you know, is a really cool piece of history. Both of those relics are game-worn, and the Jordan piece is actually from a Wizards jersey. Um, While I'm on the topic of exquisite, there were a lot of exquisite Logo Man cards over the history of the product. And, you know, I could talk just about those uh, if I wanted to. Um, One thing that I really like about this run is that um, Carvin, the architect of exquisite, was very intentional with his pairings of cards. For example, I think I saw one card that had college teammates, um, but there's a lot of exquisite content out there already. I'm not going to go into a lot of it, just um, but just know that they created some incredible cards and they played a big role in this whole Logo Man. Um, I don't know if you want to call it a movement, but um, rise in popularity. Now, I will, however, mention the second year of Exquisite as I move into the 0405 season. This set featured a triple Logo Man patch of Jordan, LeBron, and Kobe. Um, now, I, you know, everyone has their preference. I know one of the exquisite sets had a, a Jordan, Pip, and Rodman logo man that I always liked better. I guess, you know, it kind of reminded me of my childhood. But uh, neither one of those cards were the first triple, man, triple logo man product to ever exist. That one, as far as I can tell, came in the form of a 2004-2005 flare set called Head of the Class which featured trios of players that were drafted in the same year. So, for example, one of them has David Robinson, Scottie Pippen, and Reggie Miller. Now, that same product also has a five-player logo man on the checklist. I've seen a mock-up for it. I don't know if I've actually ever seen a real copy because that was also the time of the bankruptcy. There were some redemptions. I don't know if that card was packed out live or not. Uh, you know, at that time, not every poll made it to the internet, believe it or not. So if anyone has a picture of one of those, I would love to see it. But uh, Fleer tried a few other things that year with their Logo Man patches. They had a horizontal booklet. They also had a horizontal Logo Man. I know a lot of newer collectors, or at least collectors from the last decade, might remember when Panini did that with Gala, and people hated it. Uh, well, you know, Panini wasn't the first one to try that. I don't remember the same backlash for the Fleer ones, though. Maybe there was, but I don't remember it. And anyway, even if there was, that wasn't the worst thing to happen involving Fleer Logo Man patches. No, that would be the bankruptcy auction. And, um, you know, I've talked about this a little in my history of cards before, but um, Fleer went bankrupt um, at the end, toward the end, I guess, of the 04-05 season. And um, there was a company that was in charge of helping them liquidate all of their assets. So they sold everything from cards to proofs to office chairs to lighting fixtures to game-worn jerseys and so on and so on. So um, it was an absolute mess. As part of that, you had blanks of Logo Man cards without the patches that walked out the doors in legitimate sales. Um, I've heard that there were legitimate replacement copies with real patches but no foil stamping on the card that walked out the door. And I, you know, I can't verify that. It was kind of the Wild West, so it's not exactly clear what got out, and then out of all that stuff, it's not crystal clear 
what's real and what's not either. Um, I do know, though, that two of the most targeted sets for the counterfeiters were um, the 0405 Fleer EXL uh, Auto Logo Man and then the from the same set, the Dual Logo Man. And there is a really helpful website and an older blowout thread that can help with these sets. If you really decide to pursue anything from them, just Google Fleer Bankruptcy Logo Man. It should come right up. Uh, but just in general, if you're buying Fleer Logo Man cards, be very cautious. Doesn't mean all of them are bad, but do your homework. And to quote Jeremy Murray, buy wisely. So anyway, Fleer goes away and eventually Upper Deck purchases them. Upper Deck and Tops continue to make Logo Man cards. I've talked about some of the 0506 stuff before when I ran through Tops Big Game. And then I also talked about an Upper Deck Ultimate Logo Man Auto of Ron Artest that I picked up toward the beginning of 2020. Um, some of the high-end products featured Rookie Logo Man patch autos. I know, you know UD Ultimate did that since 2003. But not all Logo Man sets were popular. Uh, regardless, they always felt special to me, although I, I always had to do window shopping. I didn't get a Logo Man until many years later. But... Um, you know, you didn't typically see rookie Logo Man patches numbered to three or to five like we have in the Panini era. They just seemed a lot more uh, important to me then. But both companies continued making Logo Man cards into the late 2000s. There are a few years here where not much stood out to me. I know 2007-2008 SP Game Used had some all-star game Logo Man patches, which I liked. 2009, uh, or I'm sorry, 2008-2009 Exquisite had a jumbo patch set that randomly included some Logo Man patches as part of the print run. To the best of my knowledge, those are legitimate. And if you want to see an example, I think there's still a Rudy Fernandez on eBay right now. 2008-2009 uh, Topps Treasury had some mini Logo Man cards. They were new, they were different. I wasn't really a big fan. I don't like mini cards in general. So don't wait, in my opinion, you know, don't waste a Logo Man patch on a mini card. But that that's not to devalue those things, and that's not to discredit anyone that likes those. It's just preference. But uh, that was 2008. Things got really interesting around 2009. I've detailed this era on the show before, but the NBA was moving toward an exclusive license. And it's funny, Upper Deck actually helped push for that, and then they didn't pay up for it. But... Um, it became clear that the newly formed Panini America was going to outbid everyone. And that, in turn, initiated a giant relic purge from both companies, unlike anything we'd ever seen before. And I don't think we'll ever see anything like that again. Even if Panini were to lose their license, it would just be one company purging its stuff. Well, in 2009, we had Upper Deck and Tops. And... According to the release dates posted online, Tops and SP Game Used released Logo Man sets um, just two days apart. So one of them was on August 25th, the other one was on August 27th of 2009. And the top set was called NBA Logo Men, all one word, so Logo Men, um, and featured 95, yes, 95 different players. Each card was a one of one. Um, you know, a couple things stood out to me about this set. Um, all different sorts of Logo Man. I think Gallinari's Logo Man actually came from a hat. I don't know if I can confirm that, but it looks pretty strange to me. It looks a lot different. 
Um, I've also noticed that Elgin Baylor is on the checklist, and I'd love to see this card because I have no clue where Topps got an Elgin Baylor logo, man. Um, I want to say he stopped playing in 71 or 72, so um, I know they were using one of his old blue Lakers jerseys for a lot of sets, and I've seen the tag from the corresponding laundry tag set, but if you see the logo, man, just let me know because I'm very curious where they got that at. That was Topps, and that was an awesome set. Um, I don't have any of those. I wish I did. I think I've lost bids on a few of those over the years. That was Tops. If you thought that top set with 95 different players was huge, that was nothing compared to the SP Game U set, which was also called Logo Men, although they put a space in between the title. So uh, same title, but different kind of wording. Um, that set, like I said, came out two days later. It had 97 different players. Um, whereas the tops cards were all one of ones, the SP game you set was pretty much, let's just put pack out everything upper deck has left. So for example, Allen Iverson has 10 logo man cards. It's numbered to 10. Paul Pierce is out of 14. Uh, Dirk was out of 14. Jermaine O'Neal is out of 15. Tim Duncan was out of 16. Kevin Garnett had a logo man numbered to 18. Imagine that a logo man numbered to 18. And I, I named a handful of great players there, but there were plenty of scrubs too. And as a team collector, I love that. Even though I'm still trying to get a pacer from this set. Um, several years ago, I was at a card show. Maybe it's maybe it even four years ago, maybe even a little longer. A guy had a J.R. Giddens logo man from this set in his box. I said, you know, there's no price on it. I said, what do you want for this? He said five bucks. Well, I couldn't get my money out fast enough. And I think that one's numbered to at least nine. Um, so I added up all the numbers for all 97 players. And if the checklist is correct, it totals out to 572 Logo Man patches in one set. Um, so you add the 95 cards from tops and the 600, um, and that makes 667. NBA Logo Man cards that were released in the span of three days, 667. And like I said, 2009 was crazy. Well, we're not done. And then a little more than a month later, Upper Deck released the last NBA license exquisite set, which also had Logo Man cards, but they were duels and triples. So there were a lot of legends, a lot of stars. Um, you know, they saved a lot of the lesser players for the SP Game U set. But um, this was a lot of all-star caliber players or, or players that they thought were going to be good. You didn't, you know, you didn't see J.R. Giddens in here. Um, all in all, there were 49 dual Logoman cards and 56 triples. So that accounts for another 266 Logoman patches um, in total with those three products, Upper Deck and Tops, used up an astonishing 933 Logoman patches in a span of a little over a month. So when I said this was a purge, that was not hyperbole. Um, talk about going out with a bang. Now, I had exited basketball for a little bit at this time. Like I've said before, I was doing a little bit of baseball, foolishly. Um, <clears throat> I would come back shortly after. I had wish I had timed that a little bit better. I would have loved to have jumped in on this Logo Man madness. Um, now, I called this a purge, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here, but Upper Deck used some Logo Man patches later on 
in their 2017-2018 Supreme Hardcourt product. And for those of you that aren't familiar with that, um, they weren't allowed to produce NBA cards, so they, I don't know, I, I would call it exploiting a loophole. I don't know, you know, it's it's legal. But they created a quote-unquote memorabilia product where they took an old Bobcats court and they cut it into jumbo pieces, so they were larger than a card. And they, but they used the these pieces of court as cardstock, and um, so they had a few logo man patches in that. So some of them I know were acquired after the fact because there were guys like Ben Simmons and Demarcus Cousins who weren't even in the league when they lost their license. But as for the legends, you know, I don't know if they had been holding those back or if they had to go out and get some. Um, but there were definitely some in there. And it makes me curious, you know, are they holding back some Jordan logos just in case they need them down the line? Um, regardless, I doubt Tops or Upper Deck has much of anything left. So for all of the people clamoring for these companies to get an NBA license again, I don't suspect they have much of a materials catalog to work with. And that would be yet another financial hurdle for them to jump over if they want to produce memorabilia cards of retired players or legends. So, all right, you know, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here. Like I said, um, I'm going to talk about Panini Logo Man cards on the next episode. Um, So this was only part one. So please understand, I couldn't cover everything in detail. Um, I hope I didn't omit anything that was major. I collected throughout the majority of this time frame and remembered some of this stuff. But um, the research to tie up the loose ends, even on just the pre-Panini stuff, proved to be a bit of a massive undertaking, which you know I don't mind. I, I enjoyed a large part of that. So next week's Panini portion probably won't be as long, but I have some fun little anecdotes and strange things that happened with Logo Man. Seem to be some real strange things that happened in that time frame. I can't wait to share it with you. Maybe you remember a fun Logo Man story from the Panini era and you want to share it with me this week. Please do so. The sooner the better. Maybe there was something I said today either in the intro or the mail or even the Logo Man segment that resonated with you. Feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under the handle at Wax Museum Podcast. I'm also on Twitter under at Wax Museum PC. If you enjoyed today's episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site. Um, and many of you have done that already. Thank you so much. Uh, This works very similar to the Fanatics link that I've had for a while in that you can go to um, www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that, and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow that click. It's a simple way to support the show, but if multiple people can do that, it really helps me out. So once again, That's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. Until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast.